Welcome to the Abide in Me podcast, where we're countering the malaise of modern culture and superficial spirituality by taking aim at the truth. We'll be looking for answers to the big life questions. What was our origin? Where can we find meaning and purpose? How do we discern between good and evil? Fact and fiction? And what is our ultimate destination? You can find more content on our YouTube channel, AIM Radio, or follow us on Instagram. All links and resources are provided in the podcast notes. Enjoy this week's episode. I want to start talking today about one of my favourite teachers of all time, and that person you will probably know them as the Apostle Paul or Saint Paul, but he and his writings in the New Testament, really, not only his writings, but also his life story and his character, were actually the thing that made me believe in Christ, if I'm perfectly honest. And I think it's important to understand particularly his story of how he came to believe in Jesus, because it's one of the most, if not the most, convincing testimony about Jesus and his life and his teachings. So often when people think about the apostles, the 12 apostles, if they don't know much about the Christian story, they might think that Paul was one of the original 12, but he was not. He was not. He was, in fact, a persecutor of the early apostles and the church. He was actually part of what was the religious Jewish elite of the time, a sect called the Pharisees. And he was very knowledgeable in the Jewish law, remembering that, of course, Jesus was a Jew. All of his early apostles uh, and the people that he taught in the main were Jews. And so Paul had this great lifestyle. Uh, very knowledgeable, a lot of status within his community. He had studied Jewish law for years and he was fervent in his belief. And so he was also fervent in his persecution of the early church because he, like many people in that community, thought that Jesus was a false messiah and a false prophet. And so that he was worthy of death. He was a troublemaker and his disciples also deserved death and needed to be rounded up and persecuted. And Paul was doing this for a good few years. And so the famous story of him on the way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, once again to round up early followers of the way, which is what they they called it, the early followers of Jesus were following the way, his way, But on the road to Damascus to do this, he had an experience with the risen Christ. And Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was blinded by this light. He was then taken to Damascus and given his mission by a follower of Jesus. He was baptised and after three days, the scales fell from his eyes. That famous line that we still use today, inspiring that beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. And he did a complete 180. He became the most influential apostle in terms of setting up the early church. He completely rejected his previous life, his status, and this experience with the risen Christ when he realised that the person that he had been persecuting, the followers of which he had been persecuting, was in fact who he claimed to be. This fact absolutely changed his life and 
Not only did he start teaching and preaching and setting up these early churches, but he, he himself was then persecuted for doing so. And there are many passages in his letters where he describes the kinds of things that he had to go through, right up until the point, of course, of his arrest and then ultimate execution for spreading this message. And the same is true for some of the other apostles. They were persecuted and some of them were killed for this story that they were telling. And so because of that persecution and ultimate death, we can have pretty good confidence that they believed in what they were teaching. They believed it. They believed that they saw Christ risen, that they spent time with him, that he taught them during that 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, that they ate with him, that he was bodily resurrected, not just a spirit, not just a ghost. And they died for spreading this story. And so this idea that the apostles, um, including Paul, simply made this story up to set up a new religion or get famous and rich runs counter to the evidence that we have that in fact, no, they were persecuted for it. And so how many of us would allow ourselves to be persecuted, thrown in prison, beaten, and ultimately killed for something that we ourselves had made up? Wouldn't we at some point say, oh, actually, guys, no, this is a really bad idea. Um, We just made up this story. And so please stop throwing me in jail because actually it was just a joke. We just made it up. People martyr themselves for things they believe in, even if those things in a general sense aren't true. They believe it. People don't martyr themselves for things that they know are untrue because they themselves made it up. And so that's why we take the apostles' writings seriously because of how committed they were and how dedicated they were to spreading this story and setting up these early churches, in Paul's case, all the way around the Mediterranean. But Paul's story is unique because of this absolute turning from one way to the other. To go from rounding up the early church, to throw them in jail, to have them stoned, to have them killed, to suddenly believing the complete opposite, that in fact Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was divine, that Jesus had been raised from the dead because Paul himself saw him, is a great witness to the truth. And as I said, was one of the pieces of evidence that I just found incredibly difficult to ignore. But the reason that I'm going to focus on Paul and start to talk about Paul is because aside from the gospel, so the four gospels were Um, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But the majority of the letters in the New Testament, so these are letters or epistles written by the apostles to these early churches that they're setting up. The vast majority of them were written by Paul. So we have this great witness to his teachings and also to the person that he was because he writes very personal letters to these churches. So we get a real insight into his character in a way that we don't so much with the other apostles, because in the Gospels, of course, they're writing about Jesus. They're not kind of glorifying themselves. And the reason why Paul was such a great teacher is summed up in one of the chapters in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is the history of the early church. So after Jesus ascended, the apostles are left with this task of spreading this gospel, this good news, far and wide to all the nations because it had been pretty centralised within Israel and the surrounding area up until that point. So their task is to get the message out there. And so the book of Acts is this story written by the Apostle Luke. And again, the majority, the vast majority of the book of Acts is about Paul and his travels to set up the early church. And what a task that must have been. You have to kind of know a bit about the history of the time. The Jewish people at the time had been separated out. God chose this group of people, this family originally, the family of Abraham, 
to make a nation for himself, Israel, who would be trained, who would become a nation of priests dedicated to God, who would then eventually bring the rest of the nations or the world back to God. And so in the first century, even though the Jews were living within the Roman Empire, as everyone was at the time, they separated themselves off. They didn't mix with Gentiles or non-Jews. So for Paul, who wasn't just a Jew, but was a Pharisee, to be told that his mission is to go to the Gentiles and spread this message, that in itself must have blown his mind because he's used to being totally separated off, no interaction, no eating with each other, no hanging out with each other. And now he's been told to go to these other nations to talk about Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, because he's having the realization that, oh, it isn't just Israel. It isn't just Israel. God is the God of all. And now I'm given this task to go and speak to the all and to bring this message of reconciliation to the nations. What a task. To go out, okay, not really any kind of public transport apart from walking donkeys and ships. No communication apart from letters turning up in a new town and starting to just speak in the town square or go to the local synagogue. And so there's this great example of his teaching skills when he gets to Athens in Greece in Acts chapter 17. And he goes into the town square and the synagogues and just starts talking, just starts preaching and teaching this message, which would be a hard message to teach because there wouldn't be that much knowledge of Judaism at the time or the Jews because they're so separate. And so he has to reach this new audience. And this is why I think he's so important as a teacher and as a template for us. He has to go into a place where they don't know anything about Jesus, the Jewish religion, certainly the resurrection or what he's going to be teaching about Jesus. And so he has to reach them where they are. And this is such an important message for us today. So often today, and this is what I've noticed, um, I mean, I've been looking at the kind of Christian landscape now for over three years. And what I've noticed is that the way in which certain people talk to non-Christians about Christianity is off-putting. And it's off-putting because it's done often in this kind of sales pitch way. There's a great book by um, an Eastern Orthodox priest who grew up in a Protestant church, a kind of evangelical, megachurchy type church in America, subsequently um, converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. And as a priest, his name's Andrew Stephen Damick. He does a great podcast with... Father Stephen DeYoung called The Lord of Spirits. But he also wrote a book called Arise, O God, the Gospel, so the good news of Christ's defeat of demons, sin and death. And because he came from this evangelical um, background, he talks about this idea of, yeah, there's this sales pitch Christianity, which goes something like this. Do you accept Jesus as your personal saviour? Do you accept that he died for your sins? And the answer that most people have today when we, we are steeped in this secular society of religious pluralism, most people's answer is no. And it's usually, well, the usual response is something like, I don't need to be saved. But I, I think really it's because they don't know what that means. We don't use that kind of language today. The word Lord is not a word that people use and it has really negative connotations in a lot of people's minds. Saviour, what do you mean saved me from what? What do you mean saved me from my sins? What do you mean died for me? Why would this person die for me? 
But how does it all work? So, of course, it's, it's a rejection of that sales pitch because it isn't explained in a way that modern people understand. The other difficulty that we have today is, of course, that everyone knows who Jesus is. Everyone has this idea of, okay, yeah, Christians are saying that he died for our sins. Okay, we, a lot of people know the bare bones or at least the caricature of the story. And so, again, we have to break that down to actually help them to understand what all of that means. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, was brilliant at that. So when he gets to Athens and he's eventually taken by some of these philosophers who want to listen to him into the Areopagus and they say, come on, we want to hear more about what you're saying because... As Luke says, as the author, people at that time in Athens, they love nothing more than hearing new philosophies. So they encourage him. It's like, yes, we want to hear what you're saying. What Paul doesn't do is say, well, I'm a Jew and start telling the story of Israel, you know, start talking about Moses and the Exodus and the Torah and going through the whole of the Old Testament. He doesn't do any of that. He says, yeah, I've been walking around your city and what I've noticed is that you've got this altar over here and the inscription says to an unknown God. Because, of course, at the time, uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were worshipping multiple gods, whether it's the Roman gods, whether it's some of the Greek gods that are still hanging around. And so it sounds as if they're kind of hedging their bets by having this altar to an unknown God, just in case they've missed one. They've put this altar there. And Paul picks up on it and he says, yeah, this, this altar to the unknown God, this is the God that I'm proclaiming to you. This is the God of the heavens and the earth who created everything. And so immediately he's meeting them where they're at. And this is, this is the template for us today. What I'm not saying is we need to totally modernize the message and think of different terms for the word Lord or terms like salvation, or repentance, or sin, all of these words that, that have so much baggage around them. I'm certainly not saying that we don't use them. In fact, we must use them. We must use them. We must reclaim them from the caricature, but we also must explain what they are in a way that modern people in this society, in this secular society, that they will understand in the same way that Paul, when he went to Athens, had the humility and the wisdom to recognise, OK, they're not going to understand anything about the Ten Commandments and the Torah and Moses. And, you know, I'm not going to go through that whole story. I'm going to start with this idea of there's an unknown God that you accept and I'm going to talk to you because that is the God of the universe. And then he progresses in fairly quickly to talk about the resurrection of Christ. So he's not shying away from the central message. And the central message of Christianity is the cross, is the resurrection of Christ. As Paul says later in some of his letters, in the first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 15, he's saying to the Corinthians, again, a Gentile people, not Jewish, he's writing to them, and he's reminding them, listen, if Christ didn't rise, our faith is in vain. The apostles didn't come along to talk about this very good teacher, Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, who gave a brilliant sermon on the mount, but unfortunately met his end on a Roman cross. They were spreading this message, this good news for all that he was raised from the dead and that that is good news for all of us. So today in our religiously pluralistic society, some people outright dismiss Jesus, but most people at least admit that he existed and that he was amazingly influential, but they keep it at him being a good teacher. He's some kind of guru on par with maybe some of the Eastern mystics or the Buddha. But that entirely misses the point. That is not Jesus. Jesus is not just one of many good teachers 
or even many good prophets. He's certainly not a Hindu mystic or a Gnostic teacher, as a lot of people claim. Zero evidence for that. He was a Jew. His teachings are steeped in Judaism, in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He claimed equality with God and he claimed to be the Messiah. And that is so much a part of who he is that if you reject those things, you are rejecting him wholesale. You can't have it every and always. This is C.S. Lewis's argument. Jesus is either Lord or he's a lunatic or he's a liar. So someone who claims to be divine but isn't is a liar or he's a lunatic. There are plenty of people today who claim to be the second coming of Jesus. And we say about those people, what we say they have a Messiah complex, okay, that they're mad. And so if Jesus is claiming these things and those things aren't true, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. And if he's a liar or a lunatic, why are we even talking about him? Why are we claiming he's a great moral teacher if he's a liar or a lunatic? And so the third alternative is that he is who he says he is. He's Lord. And of course, that word needs to be explained. But even as modern people, surely we have enough humility to say, yeah, that's the language that they spoke in back then. Lord was a common term. Caesar was called Lord. You had this idea of lords and masters, which is why they were using that language. And so when I try and think of another word for Lord, I find it really difficult. Because what kind of words would we use today? People want to use terms like guru or teacher, but teacher doesn't really give you the extra connotations of Lord. Some people use director or there isn't a word that is actually sufficiently equivalent in our modern language to Lord. I mean, if anyone can think of one, then uh, I would love to hear it. And so we use this word. What's the problem with this word? Well, of course, today we have, as I said, all these negative connotations to it um, that we don't like because we, we don't have that kind of class hierarchy as distinctly as they did back then. And in the UK, for example, we have the House of Lords, but the general population isn't particularly fond of the fact that we have the House of Lords. So I think sometimes with these words, we just have to accept that these are the words that they used back then. This is a historical religion and let's just get over ourselves, okay? So we can't have it every and always. People will use Jesus to give their own religion or ideas authority. The New Age has Jesus as one of their uh, great teachers and gurus, what they call their ascended masters. He is essentially the equivalent to the Buddha. Um, in Islam, Jesus is there along with many of the Old Testament and New Testament figures. And he is a great prophet who in the Quran is said to um, not just never have been resurrected, but never to have actually been crucified, which is a problem because Jesus's crucifixion on the cross is one of the um, most well-attested ancient historical facts. So that poses a problem within Islam. Um, but yeah, they say that he was never crucified and so he didn't need to be resurrected. He was just taken up into heaven by God. But that he was a great prophet, you know, they revere him as a great prophet. They do not accept him as divine, as the son of God. In fact, the Quran says uh, God has no son. In Judaism, he's a false messiah. But the interesting thing within um, Judaism today is that there are many Jews today who accept Jesus as the messiah that was predicted in the Old Testament prophets. And so you have these movements like Jews for Jesus, or sometimes they're called Messianic Jews. If you want to look at some of these people's testimonies, you can go to a YouTube channel called One for Israel, which is basically all about Jewish people who have recognised Jesus as uh, being who he said he was. Um, but of course, there's a huge divide because many, 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 many Jews do not accept Jesus at all as being the Messiah. So he's everywhere. 
Okay, he's revered in Buddhism, in, in Hinduism. He's accepted around the world. Everyone knows who he is. And so the point is, why? If he was just one of many people who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah and ended up dead on a cross, why do we even care? Why was he so influential? Why and how did Christianity even get off the ground if in fact he just died? No one would care. And certainly the apostles would have no motivation for making up a story that ultimately got them killed in order to spread this lie that they themselves made up because they weren't converting people by the sword. Okay, this, all of that stuff happened way later. So we have to explain how and why Christianity got off the ground in the first place and certainly why people like the Apostle Paul had this huge change of heart and mind to the point that he then went out to spread this good news around the Mediterranean, which got him persecuted and eventually killed. So it's not as easy to dismiss the resurrection as most people think, because, of course, we're modern people and we'll say things like, well, I mean, uh, dead bodies don't rise. You know, we don't see it happening all the time. And so therefore, that's obviously made up something that they made up later. But you have to come up with an explanation as to why they would make up that story in the first place if it was going to get them persecuted and killed. Also, why would they make up that particular story? Because even though a lot of the Jews at the time believed in the resurrection of everyone at the end of time, they weren't expecting their Messiah to die and then to be resurrected singularly, which is what the apostles were teaching. So if you try and take the resurrection and the cross out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity. Your faith is in vain, as Paul says. And as the Apostle Peter says in his second letter, we didn't come to you with cleverly devised myths. We were eyewitnesses to these things. And at that point, he's specifically talking about the transfiguration of Christ. When they see Christ in his glory before the crucifixion and the resurrection has happened. And in John's gospel, he's saying, I'm writing these things. I'm writing this book and giving you all these examples so that you will believe. These are testimonies of things that happened. They are not cleverly devised myths. And so to the extent that people respect and love and appreciate Jesus, to the point where they bring him into their own traditions, surely that means that we need to truly understand who he is, and that we have to take what he said seriously, especially what he said about himself. And so a lot of people shy away from talking about the resurrection, which I understand because it's a difficult one to talk to modern people about because they're so dismissive of it. But that historical fact is set apart from all the other teachings of Christianity. And so that's why we need to tackle it. There's a lot, a lot of debates within Christian thought, which is why, of course, you have all the different denominations. There are divisions and splits, and some of them pretty brutal, where people are debating the theology, the doctrines. But what they do not debate is this central fact, that Christ was crucified, he was risen on the third day, that he is divine, and he now sits in authority with the Father, that Christ is Lord overall, not just the Jews, not just the Christians, Lord over all. And I think people think that's a personal choice, that Christianity is, is just one among other religions. Of course, we all think that because that's what we've been taught. But the way that we choose between them isn't my personal preference for Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or Christianity. We're trying to hopefully discern the truth. What is the truth of these things? And so you have to start with the resurrection, because if the resurrection isn't true, not just based on your personal preference for whether it's true or whether you think it's ridiculous or not or whatever, you study the evidence. If it's true, it changes the whole world. It affects not just Christians or Jews, everyone, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. If it's true, 
it changes the whole world. And then, of course, if it's true, then we take Christ seriously. We take what he said seriously. We take what the apostles said seriously, because obviously they're speaking the truth. And so that's why we study the Bible. And so this is what we need to break through, that my personal spiritual beliefs, based on my own personal preferences, are the truth. There's been a lot of uh, blowback against Target, the giant kind of superstore that is everywhere around the world. But specifically in America, they've come out with this clothing line and it's kind of satanic. I mean, one of the T-shirts has a, has a picture of Satan on it and it says something like, um, Satan respects pronouns, okay? Because they're pushing all this trans stuff through this clothing line. And so, you know, as people do these days to put things on TikTok, this guy goes into Target and he's talking to one of the women in Target about this clothing line. He's just like, look, this is just ridiculous. You know, you need to get rid of this stuff. And they're having an argument about it. So he pulls up this example of this T-shirt with Satan on it talking about pronouns. And she says to him, oh, well, actually, I am a Satanist. Very popular these days to be a Satanist, by the way. I am a Satanist. I don't believe in God. I believe in Satan. It's like, okay. And this guy obviously does believe in God. So at the end of the conversation, he says to her, well, you're all going to be judged by God. And she says to him, well, I'm not going to be judged because I don't believe in God. Now, aside from whether you believe in God or whether you're a Satanist or not, or any of that kind of stuff, there is this idea that is ingrained within us now that if I don't believe it, it's not true. And that is a lie. That is a lie. So when people say, it doesn't matter about God because I don't believe in God anyway, you're kind of missing the point. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. Just as either the sun exists or the sun doesn't exist. You might have lived in a cave for your whole life and someone comes to you and rescues you out of that cave and just says, listen, before we go out there, you need to know that we have this giant fireball in the sky that gives us life and light. So I just, you know, it's going to be very bright. I just want you to be prepared for it. And that person who lived in the cave could say, I don't believe in that. That's too fantastical for me to believe in. I don't believe in this sun. Would that mean that the sun would disappear from the sky just because that person who had lived in the cave didn't believe in it? No, of course not. You saying you don't believe in something has absolutely no bearing on, on whether it actually exists or not. So when people say things like, oh, I don't believe in God anyway, it doesn't make any difference to me. The point is, well, it will make a difference to you if, in fact, God exists. If reincarnation is true, but I don't believe in reincarnation, reincarnation will still be happening to me. Isn't that correct? So this is why it's so important that we recognise what we're doing when we're looking at spiritual teachings is not just picking a new belief that we like, like, like picking out a new car or choosing something delicious off a menu that we fancy. We are trying to hopefully find out what the truth is. Is reincarnation true or is it not true? Is God real or is God not real? Is the conception of God in Christianity true or not? Is Jesus who he said he was or is he a liar and a lunatic? These are things that we can look into, look for evidence for, think about and ascertain the truth of. But of course, as I've said before, the problem that we have in our modern day society is we just want to be agnostic about stuff we don't want to commit. So we'll say things like, oh, we'll, ne we'll, we'll never really know if Jesus rose from the dead. We'll never really know if it's the God of the Bible or the God of Hinduism or we'll never really know. We can't know these things. No, we can know these things. But we need to switch our minds on and put down our barriers so that we actually do look at these things in a rational way and not just in this kind of mystical floaty way where we never actually have to make a commitment to the truth. And so in the hierarchy of Christian teachings, the top of the pinnacle is the cross. 
It's Jesus' divinity. It's his crucifixion, his resurrection. That's where we need to start, if we're going to even bother looking at the rest of it. Certainly all of the things that people debate. People will debate what Christ's death actually did for us. They call this the atonement theories. Okay, so Christ died. He died for our sins. Okay, we need to unpack what that means. As it said in Andrew Stephen Damick's book title, that he defeated demons, sin and death. What does that mean? What's the worldview that's being explained here? Well, it has something to do with justice, ultimate justice. It has something to do with us being cleansed of all of our wrongdoing, our moral wrongdoing, which leads into the fact that there are some things that are morally wrong and some things that aren't morally wrong. It's not just a personal choice. There's something here about spiritual realities, demons. How do demons interact with us? What, what is Satan doing? What is this whole worldview that is being given to us by Jesus, by the apostles, by the Old Testament, by God, essentially, that we need to learn about before we can understand what these different atonement theories are saying and why people have come up with them, because they are very different. There's lots of different ideas about what Christ's death did or how it did it. And we need to study them. But these are things that people debate, but there's no reason in debating any of these things if you haven't at least made a decision about the resurrection of Jesus. Because all of the pontificating and debating all the different dogmas and doctrines is entirely pointless if you haven't first dealt with the cross. So I'm kind of belaboring that point because it's qualitatively different as a, as a historical fact compared to all of the other things that people debate and discuss. The importance of Mary, are, are we supposed to be venerating the saints or not? What does baptism do? What is, what is Holy Communion? Do we have to follow the seven sacraments? Do we need to use bread and wine? Do we need to use leavened bread or unleavened bread? You know, there's so many different teachings that people debate within Christianity. All of that is a moot point if we haven't first dealt with the cross. And so there are so many YouTube videos and books and debates, just so much on this particular topic of the resurrection of Christ. A very easy read is a book called The Case for Christ. And they actually made it into a film. Now, I know a lot of Christian sort of films um, can seem a bit kind of cheesy and low budget, but this is actually a good film. And it's the true story of Lee Stobel, who was an atheist and a journalist. And at one point, something happened, which led his wife to become a Christian. So they had an experience that led her to join a church and become a Christian. He was incensed with anger and in fact thought that she had joined a cult because she's there kind of reading the Bible and going to church and talking about Jesus. And so one of his work colleagues um, says to him, listen, if you want to kind of break your wife out of this religion, then all you need to do is prove that uh, the resurrection didn't happen. And Lee Stobel as a journalist is like, well, this is going to be easy. So he doesn't tell his wife what he's doing. He just goes off intent on proving or disproving the resurrection of Christ, because then the whole house of cards falls down. And he spends months doing this. It's a very difficult time for their marriage. And he goes to Israel and he visits all these different scholars and he just spends so much time trying to do this. And ultimately, he realises that he can't. And he actually converts to Christianity himself because he's so convinced that the resurrection happened. Now, with me just saying that, people are going to be like, yeah, right. But actually, this is common. This is a common way that people accept Christianity in Christ. They go into it wanting to dis 
prove it. They do not want to believe. They are a reluctant convert like C.S. Lewis, like myself, like so many atheists and scientists and all these people that are like, it can't possibly be true. And it's not as if we have this road to Damascus experience, right? It's not that we have a spiritual experience and the clouds part and we're like, oh, Jesus. You know, it's not that. It's that we've carefully looked at the evidence and there isn't really any other conclusion to make. I guess it helps if you're spiritually open. Like you have to kind of believe in a spiritual reality. Otherwise, yeah, if you're a scientific materialist, you're not going to be able to accept the resurrection or an omnipotent, uh, all-knowing God who creates everything. You're, you're just not going to put that barrier down in your own strength anyway you're much less likely to believe. But if you're spiritually open anyway and you actually carefully study this evidence, the historical evidence, the scholarly evidence, you're actually reading through the New Testament, the letters of Paul, these first-hand historical documents, it's very, very difficult to not come to accept the resurrection. And once you've accepted the resurrection, you've accepted the core of Christianity. And then the task is just learning about the rest of it. Right. So this is really interesting. What did Jesus actually say about God, about life, about death, about heaven, about hell, about sin? You know, what is yes, now I take him seriously. What is he saying to us? And not just then, because, of course, if Christ is risen, Christ is alive. What is God saying now? What kind of relationship can we have with him now? And so that's where I think it'll be good for a lot of people to start. Or maybe they come at it from the other way. Maybe they learn to love his teaching so much that then they will allow themselves to drop that barrier of dead bodies don't rise and start to actually look at the historical evidence. Because if we're dealing with an omnipotent, right, an all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, always-present God who created the universe in the first place, then obviously resurrecting Jesus is no problem. The burning bush is no problem. Any of the miraculous events are no problem for God. But if you don't believe in a spiritual reality and you don't believe in an all-powerful God, then of course none of this is going to make sense to you. So we need to understand what our core beliefs are in the beginning. And what I would say to people who are spiritual and do have a spiritual conception of the universe, in other words, it's not just this flat materialistic worldview, that think about the spiritual beliefs that you have now. Do you believe in reincarnation? Isn't reincarnation a bit crazy? Isn't it a bit crazy that the Dalai Lama is the reincarnation of a previous person? But Buddhists just totally accept it. They totally accept the fact that the Dalai Lama summons the spirits of Tibet to give him prophecies about what's going to happen. The teachings of Hinduism are crazy. All spiritual teachings are pretty wacky because they're so different to the materialist worldview. So if you have any spirit, anything, the law of attraction, whatever it is that you believe in, spirit guides, you know, Angels, all of that stuff is is showing you that you actually believe in things that people who aren't spiritual think are totally nuts. So the resurrection of Christ through the power of God's Holy Spirit isn't really crazy when you're looking at your own or other people's spiritual beliefs. So it just helps us to have a bit of humility when we're dealing with this particular issue when we can actually recognise that probably we already believe some crazy stuff anyway. So let's actually look at this without all the scoffing and, and the derision and the eye rolling. Because all of that comes from this really caricatured view of Christianity. And it, it is really the, the main religion that is caricatured in our society. And as I've said many times before, that in itself should tell you something. Okay, people aren't caricaturing uh, Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism and kind of scoffing at the Dalai Lama. But they do do it with Christ and they do do it with Christianity. And we need to work out why. Why is there such a push within our society against Christ, Christianity, the Bible? 
but not as much with other religions. Certainly the Eastern traditions get a totally free pass in this regard and we need to work out why. So I hope that helps to lower some of your barriers maybe. Um, the Bible is a, is a beautiful collection of books. And so my, my desire is to ignite a desire in other people to actually read them for themselves and to start to learn about God through the Bible and also, of course, the person of Jesus. And the very, very rich history of all of this it is absolutely fascinating to study this historical religion that forms the bedrock or at least did form the bedrock of our society in the West. So hopefully this will be a combination of um, theology and history, but also experience. You know, I said before that I didn't have uh, a conversion experience in the same way that Paul did. It wasn't an overly dramatic spiritual experience that made me believe. It was actually carefully studying these things for years. But I am a spiritual person and I have had spiritual experiences and that does form a part of my belief. It absolutely does. I do pray and I do see my prayers answered. I am in communion with God. I have that very visceral sense of being led and guided in my life and especially led and guided through the Bible. And I have a deep, deep love and relationship with God that I would like to help other people to develop. Because it's not just about the intellectual theology and the evidence and all of that. It is also about this relationship. They are two sides of the same coin that actually I believe God is calling us to. This is supposed to be a relationship. God loves us. That is the message that is repeated over and over again. And most people, a lot of Christians don't even feel that. A lot of Christians don't feel their prayers are being answered or even listened to. And so this isn't just about debates and theologies and discussions and my point of view and your point of view in terms of the doctrines of Christianity. This is about how do we actually feel that love from God and also how do we have that love for God? This is a relationship. This is a knowing. One of my favourite verses of Paul, because I love Paul's writing so much, is in his first letter to the Corinthians. And it actually comes after that very famous passage that a lot of people use in their marriage ceremonies, um, his passage about love. And at the end of that passage, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. This is the call. This is what people are seeking. This is certainly what I was seeking. Knowing and being known. Not just knowing information or knowing the truth, but knowing God, being in relationship with God and being known by God. That is an overwhelming experience that we are not going to have fully until after we die but we can certainly have glimpses of that now that when you in your prayer time or it happened to me when I was reading the bible I've spoken about this repentance experience I had where I could feel I was fully fully known accepted loved forgiven it was one of the most overwhelming experiences of my entire life. I will never, ever forget it. And that's when I knew, you know me and I want to know you. I have enough humility to say that I don't, but that I really, truly have that desire to know God. And so through my reading of the Bible, through my prayer time, my interaction with the Holy Spirit, just having this beautiful communion, this love that I feel that is unlike anything else I've ever experienced. Any kind of happiness, any kind of excitement, any kind of joy, any kind of love I've ever received or ever felt, it is totally different that I would like to 
try and talk to, to people about that. It's very difficult to describe. But I am not the only person who has these experiences. And so part of the reason why the, the Bible is so good is that you're speaking, you're listening and reading the words of people who knew Jesus. You're, you're reading the words of the prophets who were in communion with God throughout the Hebrew scriptures. You're, you're reading Paul's words. You know that Paul has a relationship with God. You can feel it, not just because of all of the persecutions he went through to get this message out, but his deep, deep love and feeling. You can feel it when you read his words. And I think that's why reading the Bible can elicit these spiritual experiences for yourself. It doesn't happen for everyone. Um, a lot of people, um, including Tim Mackey, who's one of my favourite Bible teachers and scholars, he's um, one of the people that set up the Bible Project along with his business partner, John Collins, an excellent YouTube channel. And so he's a Bible scholar. He's dedicated decades to the Bible. He loves the Bible. He loves Jesus. He's a, he's a deeply Christian man. And uh, yeah, I watched a, a talk of him recently when he admits that he's really struggled with prayer and and feeling God's presence, which is astounding. And it's only recently he says that it took him getting out of his head, getting out of the Bible and actually just going on massive hikes on his own to finally, finally feel the visceral presence of God and this visceral feeling of your prayers being answered and, and you being guided and protected and all of those things that actually a lot of people are looking for. And so, yes, I recognise that it's not just reading the Bible for a lot of people that gets you there, but it is certainly one way. And of course, you know, going to church and, you know, doing all of the things that are part of um, Christianity are important. So, yes, I hope that goes some way to explaining where I'm coming from. God either exists or he doesn't. God is either the God of the Bible or he isn't. Christ is who he says he was or he isn't. And if he isn't, we really don't need to be having these conversations. But I believe that he is and I believe that it is vitally important now at this time that we seek that truth for ourselves instead of having spirituality as a kind of hobby where we pick and choose from all of these different traditions, which means that we just have a garbled spiritual perspective that actually doesn't help us in the end because it doesn't provide us with a stable enough foundation for what we have been through and what we are going to continue to go through the total breakdown of the society and the culture that we've known. And so if you want a life raft, I would suggest that the perfect life raft is God, the creator of it all, who sustains it all with his presence. So thank you for listening once again. If you have already bought yourself a Bible, then maybe go and read some of Paul's letters and begin to understand these people in history and start to learn about their lives and their experiences, their dedication to getting this good news out to all of us over 2,000 years ago. I'll put some of the Bible references in the podcast notes, and I'll speak to you again very soon. Bye for now.